Hello, and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm Rachel Geringer, and today, in honor of West Virginia Day, which is a statewide holiday and wild and wonderful, celebrating the day West Virginia became a state in 1863, we bring you an hour-long documentary focused on the town of Cedar Grove in Kanawha County. Writer and producer Catherine Moore leads us on a journey through the history and economics in her home county. From Allegheny Mountain Radio and West Virginia Public Broadcasting, welcome to Cedar Grove, stories of striving and surviving in an American community. I'm Catherine Moore, and coming up in the next hour, we'll look at moments of transition in my home state of West Virginia, starting with emancipation. The Underground Railroad used ingenuity in order to accomplish its missions. Through labor strife. You've got the United Mine Workers District 17. Quit your belly aching. Organize! And into the present day. If the coal mines don't come back in West Virginia and some of these other states, I don't know what the men are going to do. And we'll meet the woman who wove this history together into fiction, National Book Award winner Mary Lee Settle. Recorded history is wrong. It's wrong because the voiceless have no voice in it. All that and more coming up next. Welcome to Cedar Grove. I'm Catherine Moore. Five years ago, I came back to my home state of West Virginia. Our motto is Mountaineers are always free. I was in my late 20s and looking to put down some roots. So I got a job as a newspaper reporter, and I rented a little house on a creek that cascaded down to a wild canyon. I came home for the swimming holes, the unlocked doors, and in a lot of ways, it was everything I remembered it was everything I hoped it would be. But the longer I was home, the less stable things here felt. It's a common story here in eastern Kentucky. The coal industry continues to see round after round of layoffs. The coal mines in central Appalachia were shutting down. Every day, it was all over the news. Patriot Coal says it expects to lay off more than 2,000 workers in West Virginia. Yesterday, Alpha Natural Resources filed for bankruptcy. Now, it's safe to say the coal industry might be struggling, and it may have been struggling for quite a while. It's a pile of factors, really. Cheap coal out west, cheaper natural gas, new air quality rules, the list goes on. Coal has always been a boom-bust industry, but this downturn, people say, feels different, more permanent. Towns all over are worried about the future. If the coal mines don't come back in West Virginia and some of these other states, I don't know what the men are going to do. In 2012, I sat on Peggy Coleman's front porch in Cedar Grove, West Virginia. Her house looks out over a creek and a road that spill out of the mountain on our left. Peggy's a longtime reporter, too, and a leader in her community. They'll say, well, they'll teach them a new trade. Well, what is the new trade? What, what, what can you do? While that question lingers in the air, in the meantime, well, it can kind of feel like things here are dying. And on the winter day we talked, Peggy was deep in the moment. It's like a sad town, you know. Everybody's lost their laughter. 
and I don't know why. I don't know. I've lost mine. I felt it, too, like things were collapsing. But like Peggy, I also knew that there had to be something better for this place. There had to be a future or something, but I don't know what it is. I mean, I just don't know. It was hard for people, me included, to even imagine a different future. It felt like coal or nothing, which didn't really seem like much of a choice at all. This wasn't just an economic crisis, I realized. It was also a crisis of imagination. Then one day, I got a book in the mail. It came from a friend with a note. Warning, reading this book may affect your grip on reality. Common side effects include having visions and dreaming dreams. I opened the book. On the first page was a poem called Beginning. An autobiography that begins with one's birth begins too late, in the middle of the story, sometimes at the end. I was formed by River Run, east from Virginia, where the mountains cut us off from our past, but not our memory. West to the Ohio, the Mississippi. I was formed by eons of earthquake and the rise of the mountains and the crushing of swamps into coal. Old choices, not my own, set me down in one place and not another. Old habits I had not made clung to me. To honor them, recall them, present them, and to admit my love is to cast them off at last. I believe in the power of stories, and I know that sometimes the right story comes along at just the right time. That was the case for me with the memoir of a novelist named Mary Lee Settle, born in 1918. I'm Mary Lee Settle, and we are in my living room in Ivy, Virginia, and we're just about to have an interview, and you're just about to ask me a lot of questions that I can't answer. That Settle in 1995, ten years before she died. I found out that she's best known for a series of five novels that trace the evolution of democracy and power in West Virginia for 300 years. It's called the Beulah Quintet, and in it, she reframes the history of this place. I got sick of the legends of history. I think the reality of our history is so much stronger, so much more to be proud of and ashamed of than the sort of pacified, cleaned-up legend of our history. The novels center around a place called Beulah Land. It's a fictional but recognizable version of the Kanawha Valley, where Mary Lee and I both grew up. She borrowed the word Beulah from this traditional hymn. It's an Old Testament name for Jerusalem. That's the reason that it's called the Beulah Quintet, because of the hymn of Beulah Land. 
I look away across the sea where mansions are prepared for me and view the shining glory shore, my heaven, my home forevermore. That is land-hungry cry, isn't it? What really grabbed me about the Beulah Quintet was this. Each of the five books is set at a time right on the edge of revolution. Author Mary Lee Settle called them pitch points, moments in history before the possible had become possible and the unthinkable historic fact. It is just before a change so deep that after that society is not the same anymore. Brian Rosenberg is a scholar who wrote a book about the Beulah Quintet. He says it's a story of a family, first of all. One extended family through many generations and several centuries. The family is loosely based on Mary Lee's own, and the setting is the real place where they lived, Cedar Grove, West Virginia, the same town where Peggy Coleman lives. And then that family, in turn, comes to represent uh, the history of a particular region. That region being southern West Virginia and central Appalachia. But it's also a more universal story. Denise Giardina wrote award-winning historical fiction of her own set in this place. The Beulah Quintet uh, is five novels, obviously, that really are trying to get at the essence of the idea of freedom and what America is. The books follow that ideal of freedom like a bright ribbon through time. From the English Civil Wars to what was the present for Mary Lee, the late 1970s. All the way through, it's this ideal of America and how that is impacted by the reality of America, where the reality is killing Native Americans and enslaving black people and and treating coal miners like dirt. Uh, That's the reality. But through it, how the American ideal survives somehow, or can survive, or does it survive? I think she's really raising that question. Obula Land is the first novel Mary Lee wrote in the series. In its opening pages, we meet a woman named Hannah Bridewell. It's the mid-1700s. She's desperately searching for her way home through what was then called the Endless Mountains, the Alleghenies. At one point on her 40-day odyssey, she gets stuck in an enormous thicket of rhododendron. Back then, they called it a hell. Mile upon mile of thick, snaking roots, like the unkept head of some insane giant. That's Mary Lee Settle reading from Obula Land in 1985. For two days, she had stumbled, fought, thrust her body against the unyielding mass, without food, without water, in a maze of God, while above her head and out of sight, the wild moving tops of the plants lifted their handsome black-green swirls of leaves and tried to charm the sun. As I fell deeper under the spell of Mary Lee and her novels, I got lost too, in a maze of history. I felt like I needed to get my bearings. I found myself wanting to go see the living proof of what was unfolding before me on the page. 
So I decided to visit the very real place that was the center of the whole Beulah story, the town of Cedar Grove, West Virginia. I hoped that somehow the town's people or past would offer up a clue about how to move forward. So I showed up one Saturday in May, and at the center of town was a yellow brick post office. It bustled with people picking up their mail and visiting their neighbors. When I say the town of Cedar Grove, what words come to your mind just right off the top of your head without thinking? Home. You know, where my roots are, I guess. I love it. It's went downhill, but I love it here. (laughs) And I'll stay here probably, yeah. The town nestles between two mountains on a wide river. Upriver is a coal-fired power plant. Downriver are chemical plants and the city of Charleston. It's the oldest town in Canal Valley. And it was, at one time, it was just a fantastic place to live. It's still a good place. There's good people here. I was curious how the residents remembered and retold the town's history. So I asked about their favorite stories from the past. And one came up over and over again. It has to do with Mary Lee Settle's family, the Tompkins, and the big brick house where they used to live. Well, there's a lot of tales about a tunnel going to the river and hauling salt and ammunition and stuff from a Tompkins property, which I don't know if it's true or not, but anyway. There are a bunch of versions of this tunnel story, it turns out. Some people said they were part of the Underground Railroad. They say that the Underground Railroad went through here. This was one of the safe houses. Others had the opposite impression, that the Tompkins family used the tunnels to transport people that they enslaved here before the Civil War. The slaves would come in. There was a tunnel from the uh, river that went under the football field. They used to bring them in underneath the house and keep them. I knew about that. All the rumors basically boiled down to this idea that a tunnel used to connect the Tompkins house with either an old brick church in town or the Kanaw River or both. Here's what we know. The house and the church were built by the slaves of Mary Lee Settle's great-grandfather, William Tompkins. Before there were coal barons in West Virginia, there were salt barons, and he was one of them. The salt barons made a bunch of money and had a ton of power, but theirs was an industry and an era that we don't talk about much today. Luckily, a friend of mine is studying it. Hello, my name is Cyrus Foreman. I'm a native of Charleston, West Virginia, and I'm also a graduate student of history. Cyrus has a pickling hobby that won't quit. He ferments everything, which actually relates to what he tells me next. Just beneath the surface of the area stretching from just outside Charleston up to nearly Cedar Grove, about a 10, 15-mile stretch of the Kanawha Valley, there was a resource that was essential to early America. This was salt. Salt brine, chemicals, and natural gas bubbled up along the riverside. The very beginning of the salt industry is actually something learned from the Native Americans. Like Cyrus, indigenous people used the salt to preserve their food. So it was the key to the whole economy. In the late 1700s, white settlers forced the natives out of the valley. An industry grew up to extract the salt from underground, process it in huge boilers, and ship it downriver to Porkopolis, the pork-packing city of Cincinnati. The whole area, then, was called the Kanawha Salines. You have to imagine this huge smoking hulk right next to the river, and then 
back behind it, all of the subsidiary industry that supported it. Things like timber, coal, and natural gas, fuel for the salt boilers. It was striking and it was ghastly. It smelled nauseous, everybody was covered in soot, people living in shacks and lean-tos and hovels. Making salt was basically the worst job you could have on the frontier at the time. Between the caustic chemicals and the potential for fire, scaldings, and explosions, the salt barons couldn't get free labor to stick around very long. So they began to rely instead on enslaved black people who they leased from farms further east. Between 1,000 and 3,000 people a year were brought over the hills on contracts to work in this hellish industry. And while it was hellish, for an enslaved person, being away from your slaveholder could mean a little bit more flexibility to travel and assemble. Some corporations even paid small wages to ensure them production. But most importantly, the Salines were only a 12-hour boat ride to freedom in Ohio. For many enslaved people, going to the Salines was not only a way for them to change their relationship with slavery, but it could potentially be a place where they could go to eventually claim their freedom. And there are many records of people escaping from slavery in that area. You're listening to Cedar Grove, stories of transition in an American community. We're going to take a short break. Next up, one of the most fantastic escapes from slavery ever recorded here. Stay tuned. You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT. In this episode, we bring you Cedar Grove, an hour-long audio documentary about a West Virginia town, produced by Catherine Moore. to Cedar Grove, Stories of Transition in an American Community. I'm Catherine Moore. Before the Civil War, the salt industry in the Kanawha Valley of West Virginia was one of the most brutal places to work on the American frontier. But its proximity to Ohio, a free state, did offer some chance of escape for the people enslaved there. The Underground Railroad in the area relied on secrecy and creativity for its missions, says historian Cyrus Foreman. Of all the ingenious escapes that were hatched, one of the best was one that occurred in the Salines. The story starts like this. A group of free blacks in Ohio got in touch with a white Underground Railroad operative named John Fairfield. They asked him to help their relatives flee the Salines. And they had a list of 20, 30 people who they wanted to free. So they make a plan, and Fairfield goes to the Kanawha Valley with two free blacks who pretend to be his slaves. Fairfield showed up impersonating a wealthy guy from Louisville who was trying to break into the salt industry with his two slaves. First, he orders construction of two boats. 
and while they're being built, he schmoozes with the other salt barons and wins their trust. At the same time, the two men who are posing as his slaves go out and make acquaintances within the enslaved community, find where the people who he was searching for were located, and to fill them in on what the plan is. When the first boat is finished, one of the men posing as Fairfield's slaves takes the boat and gathers about a dozen of the family members, and they set off for Ohio. The second Fairfield finds out that this escape has taken place, he is upset as he can be. I'm going to get this. The second my second boat is finished, why well, I'm going to go and find them in Ohio. But when the second boat is finished, another dozen of the enslaved immediately disappear with it. When Fairfield finds out, he poses as angry as possible. He's lost the boats that are going to make him his money, the salt that's going to make him money, and his own two slaves. He's as upset as anybody. He goes and gathers up everybody who wants to go chase after these so-called fugitives. This Underground Railroad operator is at the head of this posse of slave hunters. They march into Ohio, and the second they get there, he gives them directions. He says, all right, you guys go off that away in search of them. You guys go off that away. And he says, I'm going to take off in that direction. We're all going to come back and meet back here. A couple days, we'll find them. Fairfield went a different direction than everybody else to the place where the more than two dozen newly freed people were and then helped lead them further north so that their freedom would be assured. As incredible as this story is, those kinds of escapes were rare. I decided to go look for clues of the people who didn't escape, which was most everybody. Back then, Cedar Grove was a giant plantation owned by the writer Mary Lee Settle's great-grandfather. In the 1840s, the people he enslaved built him a big brick house and a little brick church. There's talk in town of tunnels that run between the two structures. So I go to the church. It's simple and gem-like, with Gothic windows, a small steeple, and a bell. On one side of the shady churchyard, I find clusters of mossy graves belonging to Mary Lee Settle's white relatives. On the other side, I find a muddy ditch filled with deep purple wildflowers. And I meet a woman named Jean Lamb, one of the main caretakers of this spot. So it's kind of this gulch. Yes, yes. Now, see, see right there, see the big rocks? Jean points to some clusters of round river stones with chipping white paint. See them right there? Yeah. And right there. Those are supposedly uh, graves, like there's one way up there. She first noticed them years ago when she was out on a stroll through town. So I walked down there, and there was a sign that said, uh, free at last, thank God, free at last. And then it indicated that it was a slave cemetery. And I looked around, and it was so overgrown that you could not see one gravestone. Jean, of course, had rediscovered the graves of the enslaved people who built Cedar Grove. They'd been buried here, right near the church, but apart from the graves of the Whites. And since then, Jean and a local historian, Anthony Kinzer, have worked to create a memorial for them here. They began by clearing out the gulch around the stones. Here's Anthony. We had mowers, weed eaters. We had to cut down small trees to allow others to see what it was like. They also worked to spread the word about the cemetery to anyone who would listen. The value I find in restoring a place like this is that it creates years of understanding to those who come after me. 
An artist eventually made a painting of the site, imagining what a funeral for a slave here might have looked like. Jean describes the image from memory as we stand beside the graves. Big, vast, open fields. And then you have a little hill going down. You see a group of men carrying the coffin down to the burial site. And then you see the family and, and the friends all gathered around in their clothing from that period. I don't know if the song Beulah Land was originated back then, but you can almost close your eyes and hear them humming that as they're taking the coffin down the hill. There they are buried there without any identification at all. But they had a name and they were called a name during that time. It'd be gratifying to put a name on the rock or have a stone identifying somebody that was buried there. Their names may not have been recorded on headstones, but I knew that slaveholders sometimes kept records. So I went to the archives at West Virginia University to look at the business ledger of Mary Lee Settle's great-grandfather, William Tompkins. I opened its mold-stained cover, and there, inside, on page after fragile brown page, Tompkins had recorded the names and birthdays of the people he enslaved. Mary Shelton, born 2nd March, 1834. Miles Shelton, born 1st March, 36. Kitty Shelton, born June 38. Their names continued in rows, whole families. I wondered which ones lived until the Union Army brought many of the valley's freed slaves to a new life in Ohio, where their future was perhaps more uncertain, but also, I hope anyway, more free. As I read Mary Lee Settle's work, I felt like I was descending to some underground place and finding a buried history of home. One tunnel led to another, further and further underground. Now folks, this is your first stop on your, on your tour. Freed me stop here to give you just a little history of this little coal mine. In the late 1970s, the author Mary Lee Settle literally went underground when she rode into the narrow tunnels of an exhibition coal mine near Beckley, West Virginia. She was researching for her novel, The Scapegoat. It's the fourth book of the Beulah Quintet, and it takes place in the days leading up to a 1912 coal strike. You couldn't write about the modern valley, which had been both destroyed and made feudal and made rich by coal without going back somewhere near the source of the coal business itself. An old coal miner took her through the dark passageways. She brought along a tape recorder to capture her experiences. Look at that. that what's that miner up there, that glistening stuff? That's just some kind of a fungus there. It's, just it's a, a fungus, is it? It's kind of like a mold. Mary Lee quizzes the man about his early days mining in the 1920s. He tells her about roof falls and explosions. She asks about the prices of things, the chronology of it all. She asks a lot of questions. What about animals? Is it true there are always a lot of rats? For going to mine, they come in, lay down, go to sleep, and maybe wanted to nip me on the finger or something like that. Yeah. But uh, mostly stayed out of the way. She tries to get a feel for what life was like underground. That's all right. I don't need the light. I'm listening. 
There's a little racket all the time. Yeah. You hear things. It could be water, could be the top, or could be just little shivers are falling off. A cold weight coming down on the cold, cold popping, cracking. Mary Lee Settle discussed the visit in a 1980 interview. In, a, in mine or a cave, sound is very different, and the drop of water you can hear, you know, it echoes against the side of the cave. It's very noisy in there. Now, I'll tell you what I want to do. I want you to stay right here, and I want to walk around that curve. And okay. I'll come right back. And you put your light out, will you? Yeah. Because I just want to see something. You know, I'm as scared as the next, but my curiosity is so great it saves me. So I was able to go into a mine alone, and boy, it was scary, really scary. Is it right to say that it's noisy in a quiet way? You expect silence, but it's a silence full of, full of sound. After the salt industry went bust in the late 1800s, Mary Lee's own family opened up coal mines of their own in Cedar Grove. By then, the Upper Valley had transformed from a mountain farmland to a series of coal towns. To hear about some of this history firsthand, I go visit with a woman named Carol Saunders. Carol Martin Saunders. Who was born in 1921. She lives here in Cedar Grove. I have been here all my life. Never lived anywhere else. Right up here on this hill, that's where I've been. Carol's yellow house sits on a wooded hillside. Pumpkin Hill, that's what this is, Pumpkin Hill. They said that it was supposed to be shaped like a pumpkin. <laughs> that's what they say. <laughs> Her house overlooks the red brick house that was home to Mary Lee Settle's family, the Tompkins. Most of Carol's family worked for them over the years. Her mother, Serena, was their cook and nurse. In fact, Serena nursed Mary Lee when she was just a newborn baby. Because her mother wasn't able to nurse the baby, so Mama did. Carol's father also worked for the family. My dad is named Thomas W. Martin. Carol, was your papa coal miner, or what did he do for a living? Coal miner? Coal miner is all he ever knew in his lifetime. Thomas started mining in the days before labor laws. Carol still remembers how hard he worked. He would get out and go to work. Oh, he would get out to drag and look like to me as if he wasn't going to be able to put one foot in front of the other, but he'd always make it and go to work. And he had respect. He had respect of all of the men and the coal miners and all of the bosses and everything, they all would always talk about that Tom Martin is one good man. They'd always say that. Thomas was paid in scrip, or coal company credit, which could trap families in loops of debt to the company store. And lots of times you go down there with your scrip card. Sometimes you, you would want more than you could draw scrip for. <laughs> lots of times. Coal companies in Thomas's day built whole towns for workers. They even hired their own private police to watch over it all. Dreaming of greater independence, miners and their families periodically rose up to demand the right to join a union. And when they did, labor organizer Mary Harris Jones came to support them. Mother Jones was a little old lady in a long black dress. 
She cussed like a section foreman and specialized in causing a ruckus. She once gave a speech in Cedar Grove. In the fourth novel of the Beulah Quintet, Mary Lee Settle reimagined the scene. Mother Jones has assembled all the women of the coal camp in a barn late at night. The strikers have been kicked out of their company housing, so they're living in tents. Some drunk mine police accidentally set fire to their tent camp. Mother Jones knows it's a golden moment to incite a rebellion, and she does not hold back her words. Here is Mary Lee Settle reading in 1982. It was time to ring the chimes. Mother let go. Her voice pounded the barn walls. The womanhood of this valley shall not be beaten, robbed, and violated like you was tonight by a bunch of company bloodhounds. Nevermore, she paused for the amens, the yes, yes she knew would come, always did from the Baptists and the Holy Rollers. They caught the amens from each other, and nobody said hush. She sensed that it was time to step right out onto dangerous ground. And the church, she let them have their little stir at that. Now, I don't say nothing about your church as such, but it ain't your church. It's a company church. You can't even use it to get buried from when there's a strike. It don't belong to God. It belongs to the company with a company Jesus. Why, that company Jesus don't know no more about you than a dog does its father. You don't need no company Jesus up this holler. You got the United Mine Workers District 17. Quit your belly aching. Organize. You can tell them in the country, tell them in the town. The miners down in Mingle their shovels down. We won't pull another pillow another ton. Or lift another finger till the union we have won. Stand up, boys, let the bosses know. Turn your buckets over, turn your lanterns low. There's fire in her hearts and fire in her soul, but there ain't gonna be no fire in the hole. Lifelong Cedar Grove resident Carol Saunders was just a baby then, but she remembers her family talking about this era in West Virginia. Some nights they'd have to cover up the windows and all, you know, because the people were shooting at each and all that. Carol's cousin is named Catherine Atwater. She was born during a particularly long and fierce conflict. I was actually born in 1912. My early days were spent in Cedar Grove. Catherine grew up on a little hill across from Carol, and she remembers one of the miners' mass marches. This was around the time that all the fighting climaxed in 1921. And I remember once when the miners were on strike, and we sat on the front porch and watched the miners march through Cedar Grove on their way to Charleston. Catherine tells me she misses the sense of solidarity that she felt in her community back then. See, everybody now is me, I, and mine. Then it was us, ours, and yours. People just loved each other, dog baby. Take Catherine's uncle, Thomas. When his fellow coal miners were thrown from company housing, he offered them his land so they could build temporary shelters right here on Pumpkin Hill. The same year I'm talking about that the coal miners struck, my Uncle Tom Curl's daddy let them build what they call barracks, two-room houses, so the men who are striking but have somewhere to stay. When the strike was over, Thomas repurposed the materials of the shelters. He made a new house, 
the one where Carol Saunders still lives today. He got together, rest some of that lumber, and then built this house. <laughs> and they've been adding on, putting on for this. The West Virginia Mine Wars brought national attention to the plight of miners in the area around Cedar Grove. The walls of the room where Carol and I are sitting literally helped build the groundwork for the National Labor Relations Act, which passed in 1935. The novelist Mary Lee Settle loved the rebelliousness of outspoken figures like Mother Jones. But in Settle's books, and in history, people like Mother Jones are the exception, really. Most of her characters lived their lives out of the limelight. They were people more like Thomas, who pushed the status quo over time with their everyday actions and choices. Here's Mary Lee talking about her work in a 1995 interview. All through the 20th century, these choices have had to be made by people. And the only people we know about are the people who um, are either well-known or uh, made a career out of it, so they got a lot of publicity. But there were always people behind them in those pictures, always people nobody knew. I'm writing about the other people in the picture that made these choices but didn't make a thing out of them, just did it. You're listening to Cedar Grove, stories of transformation in one American community. After another short break, we'll head for the early 1960s and explore the borderlands between Beulah Land and Camelot. Keep your radio tuned right here to WMMT. In this episode, we're bringing you Cedar Grove, an hour-long audio documentary about a town in Kanawha County, West Virginia, produced by Catherine Moore in 2016. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Cedar Grove, where I'm sifting through the past for clues. Clues about a future direction for West Virginia, my home. I'm Katherine Moore. Cedar Grove is the hometown of author Mary Lee Settle, and it's where she set five historical novels known as the Beulah Quintet. As I connected with the history in Settle's novels, I began to realize that the stories I was encountering of people making change in history had something in common, the willingness to not be held down by expectations. The whole notion that you can decide for yourself how you live your life is still in some ways a very radical idea even now. That's Gordon Simmons, a field organizer for the West Virginia Public Workers Union who was friends with Mary Lee Settle. He says the Beulah Quintet is really about people seizing control of their own destiny. Because people are constrained by expectations that they didn't create for themselves. And to be able to shuck those off and do it without regrets is probably 
one of the bravest things that any individual could do. Mary Lee's work seems to say that this is a part of the essential work of democracy, and no one can do it for us. Do it for yourself. Don't expect some other thing to come along and save you or some other thing come along and define you. You know, this is an opening to find yourself. The old, the old definition is gone. So this is an opportunity that you should seize in order to figure out your own freedom, be brave enough to, to live your own life. Part of controlling your future, I found out, is controlling your own story of self. One of the struggles historically in Appalachia has been exactly that. Outside forces have reached in and tried to label the region many times. Even today, lots of people associate West Virginia with images of broken down shacks and hungry children. One of the key moments this image crystallized was during the 1960 presidential election. West Virginia was a pivotal state, so we got a lot of press. For a moment, it became the focus of then-Senator John F. Kennedy's campaign. Senator John F. Kennedy has said time and again that the youth of West Virginia is its greatest hope. Today, Paula Clendenin is an artist living in West Virginia. But back during the election, she was a fifth grader in Cedar Grove. As a kid, she was free to run in the hills and swim in the river. To Paula, the town felt close-knit and safe. And it was just like its own little galaxy, and they were all on this planet together. Paula remembers the day that Kennedy made a campaign stop in her hometown. We all went out to the bus stop and got to shake his hand, and I got an autograph. And it was all kind of exciting. Kennedy got up and made a speech on the hood of a black Cadillac in front of the movie theater in town. I am uh, traveling around West Virginia, as you know, as one of a series of itinerant candidates for the Democratic nomination. By that time, tens of thousands of coal miners in West Virginia had been thrown out of work by industry mechanization. Unemployment and poverty rates were high. Just like today, Appalachian coal was facing increased competition from oil, gas, and markets out west. Mary Lee Settle wrote about this era in The Killing Ground. It's the final installment of the Beulah Quintet, Settle's five-volume series of historical novels set in West Virginia. A character in the book, Hannah, volunteers for the Kennedy campaign. She's young and naive and well-to-do, and one day she drives some members of the press in a motorcade behind the candidate to Lacey Creek, where her ancestors lived. Author Mary Lee Settle reads from the scene. We turned up a creek road. I could hear the creek whispering. The mountains were so close to each other that we passed through a tunnel of trees and cliffs. On one side, the blasted rock showed a faint seam of coal. The motorcade filed deeper and deeper into the mountain and then pulled over. Everybody got out. Near the creek, there were Jenny Lynn shacks, some half fallen in, a few with washing hanging on lines. All of it seemed sunk in an undertow of desertion. The roads were black with old coal dust. Over the door of a dead cinder block building with no roof across the road was a dim sign, Oddfellows Hall. Someone had written on the wall, this way to the rat hole with a black arrow pointing down. One of the reporters said, Jesus. Eventually, a few people come out of their houses, and there's a photo op for the press. Hannah watches from a few feet away. I have never been more ashamed than I was at that moment. I hadn't known. 
Maybe for us, a sense of shame that stirs what is left of our old Puritan genes is the beginning of wisdom. I don't know. I only know I was ashamed for strangers to see us like that. I am aware now that I had never said us before, even to myself. Meanwhile, back in the real world, a month after Kennedy's visit to Cedar Grove, fifth grade Paula Clendenin's favorite magazine came in the mail, the Saturday Evening Post. And I was shocked when they had pictures of Kennedy in West Virginia, and they were talking about the poverty and the poor people, and it showed a picture of him in Cedar Grove. I just remember being enormously floored by that, that we were poor, that we were so poor that the nation knew we were poor. Paula's trusted source was saying that her idea about her home was all wrong, and it forever changed the way she thought about the place where she grew up. It was like the innocence was gone, she says. It really switched things for me. What I thought was beautiful before I saw it in another light. Some kind of life-changing wave went through me. And then it became very important to me to get out of there. It took her years until she could feel good about Cedar Grove again. Until she could appreciate the specialness of her life there. Seeing the baptisms in the rivers on Sunday morning and the tent revivals and the little firemen festivals and stuff like that. Uh, I think there was a lot of sensory feeding versus what would be a much more successful economic community didn't have. I think that kind of environment feeds creativity if you're so inclined. You know, creativity is finding the uniqueness of something. The tales of tunnels, the little brick church, Stories of the older generations. Paula realized that all those things were part of what made her home unique. Even though I was becoming aware of like how perhaps unspecial Cedar Grove was becoming as I was getting older and realizing the poverty and stuff, that, that history was so special it made it like more than just being a dying little town. It had such a rich little history. Paula says that even though her artwork is abstract, it connects to Cedar Grove in elemental ways. It's full of the things that Paula thought and still thinks are beautiful about the place. Old rocks, cracking layers of paint that show the erosion of time. You know, I love rust now. I use cold in my work. The layering of texture and the time effect on surface. I think everything I do now in my artwork, even though I, I do it from a more intellectual base. And that it comes from there. Both Paula and Mary Lee Settle found their creative fuel in a place where others had seen poverty and lack. Paula makes paintings. Mary Lee Settle wrote books. I want to take you now to the final scene of the final novel in Settle's Beulah Quintet. It takes place in 1980. The character Hannah McCarkle, who drove the Kennedy motorcade, is now in an airplane flying over Beulah Land. Over the same woods, in fact, that the first Hannah character fought her way through in the mid-1700s. This new 1980 Hannah, we find out, is the author of the whole Beulah Quintet. She looks down from the airplane, and she sees the scars from mountaintop removal mining laying bare the seams of coal that now, in 2016, are getting played out. 
Kate Wong, a West Virginia writer who knew Mary Lee, reads from the final pages of the book. The raw hills rolled bluer and bluer in the distance, their scars shining like battlements. They gashed black runnels down to the river, their new man-made tablelands pale among the skeletal winter trees. But in addition to the acres of wasteland, she also sees new shoots of growth. And the book ends with a kind of hope that's more questioning than it is certain. I could see patches of green where someone had already begun the reclaiming of the land. It was theirs now, to build or to defile, and I had no place in it. But I carried with me, after all the searching, from all the people I had conjured up and brought to life again, a thing deeper than land. It was the choice to choose, to be singular, burn bridges, begin again. Whether in a new country, or a new way of seeing, or a new question, which was as ancient as wandering itself. It's been five years now since I came home to West Virginia and fell down this rabbit hole of history. The problems we face in the present day still feel daunting. As the Appalachian coal market shifts, the economic crisis we face is real. But now, I think I finally see the light at the end of the tunnel. The light is us. Mary Lee Settle's writing doesn't offer us a grand solution. The Beulah Quintet says, you have to make the answer. You have to decide. It's a history of people looking for new ways to survive and be. And we are the ones who are writing its next volume. To get some perspective, I wanted to walk the land that the character Hannah saw from the airplane at the end of the Beulah Quintet. So I met up with my friend Stacy Ellis. He's a spry, twig-thin, 85-year-old man who carves intricate wooden earth-moving equipment in his spare time. I'm Stacy Ellis, born in the head of Cabin Creek and come here when I was real young. Stacy's been hiking all over these mountains for his whole life. These days, he gets around on an ATV. His tiny poodle, Sassy, sits on his lap as he tools along the back roads, gathering berries and greens. That little dog rides with me. One summer day, Stacy offered to take me up Horse Mill Holler. It's the land back behind the old Tompkins house, which still stands. Stacy's daughters own and maintain it, in fact. Stacy used to deliver groceries up Horse Mill. He worked for the company store that was owned by Mary Lee Settle's family. The Tompkins owned all the property up in here. After a few minutes, we arrive at the family's old coal mine, a cut in the side of the mountain, covered in vines. This is where the drift mouth of the mines was. Now it's all covered in vegetation now. We pass the ruins of the old slave quarters. After emancipation, they were converted to coal company houses. They were houses all along here. All close together? Yeah. Uh-huh. We come to a natural gas pumping station. It releases a gauzy tendril of smoke into the air. We're right in the head of horse mill beside the pumping station. Suddenly, amid the buzzing, I realize where we are. 
It's the spot where Mary Lee Settle's grandmother used to come and collect honey for her family. I recognize it from a scene in Settle's memoir. Back then, it was wilder, more pristine. Today, the headwaters of Horsemill Creek are a weird, milky color, and I feel a pang of worry. Stacy and I head further up the mountainside, and the summer's lush forest canopy begins to thin. Starting to be able to see the sky. Then I see the trail ahead go vertical. We stop, and Stacy hands over the reins. He balances on the hood of the four-wheeler, so we don't flip over backwards on our climb up the steep ridge. Okay. Don't run me over the hill, he says. (laughs) Okay, you ready? Yeah. Are you all right? And then we take off up the mountain. When we get to the top, gas lines stretch from here to seemingly everywhere. And you can finally see the open sky. This has been Cedar Grove, a co-production of Allegheny Mountain Radio and West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Find more stories, photos, and history at cedargrovestory.com. Drop us a line and tell us how you're writing the story of your home's future. This program was produced by me, Katherine Moore, and edited by Ben Shapiro. Bob Webb mixed this hour. Original music by Caleb Samples, Heidi Muller, and Bob Webb. Additional recordings and soundscapes by Elaine McMillian Sheldon, Billy Waraznik, and Nate May. Photography by Roger May. The executive producer is Gibbs Kinderman. Special thanks to the women of Cedar Grove, Catherine Atwater, Jean Carey, Paula Clendenin, Peggy Coleman, Sharon Hemmings, Lynette Hudnell, Jean Lamb, Carol Saunders, Linda Saunders, Shirley Ellis Stennett, and Patty Ellis Thurman. Thanks also to Stacey Ellis, Denise Giardina, Heather Hanna, Maxine Kenny, Anthony Kinzer, Kate Long, Brian Rosenberg, Gordon Simmons, L.B. Thurman, John and Wanda Tompkins, and Nicholas Weathersby. Funding for this program was provided by the West Virginia Humanities Council and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk featuring Catherine Moore's hour-long radio documentary about the town of Cedar Grove in Kanawha County, West Virginia. Brought to you on June 20th, 2018, West Virginia's 155th birthday. If you'd like to hear this or previous episodes again, visit our website at www.wmmt.org or download Mountain Talk wherever you get your podcasts. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, And from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio.